Hello and welcome everyone to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Joe Ramachandran from Microsoft. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks to be here. For those listeners who aren't familiar with you, could you maybe share a little bit about um, the role you play at Microsoft today? Thank you. Yeah, I am part of the MaxUC solution and product team um, within Metaswitch. Now we are Microsoft. So my responsibility is on the Max UC client, the user experience, and I work with other members in my team to bring that solution to our customers. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm looking forward to, to talking with you about that, to talk a little bit about you know some recent refreshes and upgrades you've done to the client and also the, the Ray Baum Act. But actually, first, if you are comfortable, um, I always enjoy hearing a little bit about people's backgrounds and stories. So I'm curious, how did you get into telecoms? Was it something you you always dreamed of doing from when you were a little girl? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Actually, no, I happened to come into Maxis or telecoms accidentally. I was trained to be a physicist and um, meant to be a, a professor. But actually... The way I ended up in telecoms was serendipitous. I started as an engineer in working on Lucid DAX systems, and that might date me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and then moved on to writing software for Sonnet Network Terminators, moving up the stack with an ATM and Frame Relay and IP um, solutions. And somewhere along the line, I became a product manager. Great, cool. It sounds like we yeah we both started out writing code and then um, moved into a more communications focused um, role. So that's that's great. Cool, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about MaxUC, and I guess we should start. You know, for anyone who hasn't used it, maybe could you briefly explain what it is? Right. So MaxUC is our solution, which people might recall we rebranded from what was called App Session uh, in a hosted media ways. Um, MaxUSHI is really a family of solutions. We offer um, the server side and it comes with clients, addresses from all the way from SIP trunking to you know, hosted BBS, hosted voice services, to UC solutions, including collaboration, chat, SMS even. And we also have over in our family contact center solutions that we, we sell in the service and standalone meeting, of course, which is a meeting service. It's a, it's a broad, spectrum and a broad family of solutions and, you know, including our perimeter SVC and the ability to fit fixed operators as well as mobile operators, our innovation around uh, mobility and bringing UC services to the mobile native users. We have quite a broad um, family of solutions that enable our customers and uh, we have over 330 plus customers worldwide today and the platform is highly flexible so it gives them the opportunity to address niche markets very local specific market segments and how they put the solutions together so very proud about that yeah it's cool i think max uc is fairly rare or possibly even unique among the the metaswitch now microsoft product set in being kind of consumer facing you know it's got design elements and you know functionality that regular normal people, not just network administrators would use. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, I imagine it's fun to be in the, the cool part of the company where all the exciting stuff's happening. Always cool in communications. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So this year, you've just launched a pretty new, pretty big refresh to the Max UC clients. So there's a, as I understand it, there's a new approach to the UI. And I'm curious to hear a couple of things, actually. Firstly, what, what prompted you know the refresh process? Um, but also, I think this time around, you've uh, gone through a fairly collaborative kind of beta testing process with um, users, which maybe hasn't always been the case in the past. So I'd love to hear how that went and uh, how you're feeling about the new the new UI. Right. That's an exciting time to stand up finally and say that we have launched the new desktop. I know our customers have been extremely patient with us, and this has been a big ask for, for a number of years that I've been here. User experience is an, is an interesting um, field, actually. Uh, if you recall, we did uh, revamp our mobile clients about a couple of years ago and, and did a refresh. The desktop client refactoring that was on the cards for a while now. Our uh, client was looking a bit vintage as a, as a voice-first kind of a client. But user experience, as I said, is, is just an interesting field. It's also fundamental to adoption. So as um, more, as you want more people to intuitively leverage the capability set, you have to pay attention to, to user experience. And the other factor about user experience is that it morphs and we don't realize how we are changing. What was once acceptable um, is less acceptable today because of advancements of maybe devices that they have, um, touchscreen, for example, haptics, and also the familiarity with some of the functionality. So it was time to revamp the new UI and deliver something that was modern so that we're not just addressing a voice-first end user, but really adapting the UI for modern workflows where we are all multitasking and should be able to flow through our work in a way that a tool is, a, is an asset and helps us optimize our workflows and, and not become a deterrent to it. So it was time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm curious, I'm not a UX expert, but I'm curious to what extent you view changes in UX as being almost like a fashion thing, where it's like apps that are created today tend to look like this, versus to what extent it is a evolution where apps today are kind of categorically better than apps from five years ago. It's not just they look like a 2022 app, it's that they are actually better and more usable. What's your thoughts on that? I'm in the latter category. I mean, it's interesting you call it as a akin to fashion and never thought about it like that. Uh, but definitely, yeah, as, as I said, you know, user experience is an evolving thing. It's such a multi-dimensional problem. It's, it's about devices I talked about, but that's pretty obvious. It's about the psychology of how we use. It's about digital natives, how they have come to use. And the things that we bring to it from other aspects of our life are, you know, our consumer aspects of our life that we bring to it. So it's continuously evolving and it's getting better. The expectation of higher and it's getting better. That's really cool. So what specifically have you changed uh, in terms of how the, the app works? My, from what I've seen, it's bigger, is <laughs> the very simple, very simplistic view of it. Before it was kind of like a, a small pane and now it's kind of all in one, um, all in one screen. Is that the kind of core philosophical change in this version? On first glance, it appears like that would be one of the first things you'd pick up. One, it was a ribbon kind of style of a UI. And now it's a single pane of glass, as they call it. It's actually one window with multiple panes that all work um, cohesively and contextually. But it's it's a little bit more than that. In in doing the refactoring of the UI and the and the functionality that it provides, we also refactored the technology. 
So that was fundamentally a, a fundamental change in how we did that. And the reason is it gives us better developability, maintainability of, of the of the client. It's also cross-platform. So one of the things that we realize is more and more of our customers and their end subscribers are moving to Mac. So that ability to have a cross-platform development without a tax um, was important to us. So yes, we did that. And a few other bits there in terms of how well it leverages the environment. Notifications, for example, built into Windows notifications. So we can we can leverage what the OS offers and be smart about what we bring uh, out in the UI. That's cool. Yeah, I would like to love to hear a bit more about how you integrated user feedback into the process. Because yeah, like I said, we've got the you had a beta program that is maybe more extensive than you've had in the past. So how was that as a way of working for Microsoft? Very, very, very cool and interesting. We had a, a big team doing that, and UX designers really helped. Now we did early on. We did user focus groups to get feedback, so iteratively come up with designs and, and test out the designs and ask for feedback and um, glean from the feedback. You can't ask pointed questions, but you glean from the feedback. So we had different age groups, different professionals bringing their voice to what they expected of a UC client. So that was very helpful. What we did early on is, I wouldn't call it a beta program. It reflects two things. One is, as much as we wanted it to be a beta program, and we think we talked about it as a beta program, we were ambitious about what we could have done. And clearly, we weren't quite there when we offered it as a beta program. But in hindsight, um, it wasn't a, a bad idea to get early on, get that early user feedback. So we had a, I think we called it the early access program. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't want to confuse our customer base to think that this is bait as much as it was. It was an early access program. And it helped us refactor even as we were building this whole thing, refactor what is possible, where, what was pragmatic, you know, in some, we had to make some trade-offs and, and take the pragmatic approach because time is of the essence and we wanted to get it out of market on a delay anymore. So it was very useful to have that. The, the thing about in hindsight, one of the things I feel we probably fell short is a lot of our customers wanted to get into the early access program and we weren't ready to take on that much more. So we had to quickly refactor and get on with it and not expand it for, you know, I think we had eight weeks of early access program. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do any more. So. so it ended up working better to have a fairly small group, yeah. a fairly, fairly limited time period rather than allowing everyone in who wanted to see it. Exactly. Yeah. We quickly learned what kind of things that we'd have to make trade-offs on. So it's essential to do that. Yeah. Once you're hearing the same feedback for the 20th time, it's probably not as useful as the first three. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. One factor that probably was relevant as you were kind of figuring out the features to include in this release um, is actually driven by legislation. And mm -hmm. so I want to talk a little bit about um, Ray Baum's Act. Uh, for those who are listening who don't know, this is one of a, two different laws in the last few years that have been trying to improve the way that 911 works in certain situations. And the other is Carrie's Law, which was prompted by a situation where a little girl in a hotel had a hard time dialing 911 due mm -hmm. to the need for a, an extra digit for an outside line. And then Ray Baum is focused really on providing more specific location information for a, for a 911 call. Have I summarized that about right? Is that, yeah. is that fair? So in your, to give an example of that, of what I mean, I think traditionally a 911 call, 
the operator would have a database which would give the address associated with the, the call, which is maybe fine for a residential home. But if you've got a large office complex and there's one address and there's three buildings, or you've got a hotel and there's multiple wings, that might not be specific enough to help the emergency services get there in time. So as you approached fulfilling the features required to meet these laws or that law in particular, what challenges did that present to you or does that present more generally uh, to anyone who's creating a VoIP client? Lots of questions to unpack there. Um, clearly, the regulations um, that were specific to nomadic clients, um, because we already had support for uh, emergency uh, uh, 911 location information, the registered location information, etc., for fixed endpoints that were fine. It's the nomadic clients and VoIP clients. Now, there are two use cases to the nomadic clients. You could have a VoIP client within your campus and be moving from one building to another. Or you could be taking your um, laptop home or to a cafe, and so your off-premise location. So we had to figure out if, if it's technically feasible to offer dispatchable location information in both use cases. There are many ways to do that. Each has its trade-offs. What we aim for is to come up with something that our customers can use without um, additional burdens to add to them, to what is the minimal path towards meeting this. And had to sort out between on-premise use cases and off-premise use cases. On on-premise use case, the way we went about solving for this is to allow for the service provider to get from the BG admin at the premise, a location map. In other words, a, a, a table of network elements, the BSSID network identifiers, and a mapping of the dispatchable location that the, the admin would provide and have that be uploaded into EAS as a way for the EAS to have that store and the clients to be able to use that map. And when they glean the network information, to use that information, the, the mapping, in the pit of flow heaven. So I'm curious to unpack that um, yeah. a little bit. So the idea then is that you've pre-provisioned into the, the EAS system, this network map, which helps to classify um, lines as being in a certain location. So then somebody opens up their laptop in the cafeteria of the office building and it registers, well, it picks up its IP address from DHCP and then it registers through a firewall, through NAT, et cetera, to the session border controller. How, how is it? How is the the map able to identify that the laptops in the cafeteria? Yeah, I think that, that's a good question. So there's a map. Let, let's start from the point where the service provider has uploaded a map for that beachy into EAS. Mm -hmm. The client logs in and periodically, let's say once a day, or downloads that map from EAS and has a map to know. Mm -hmm. So when it's when a user signs in, when they, when they start the app, it has on Windows, you can get the IP address and port or subnet address. Or mm -hmm. if it's using a Wi-Fi access point, you get a BSSID address. So the client looks that up and then refers to the location map to say, ah, this is my dispatchable location. So it has that dispatchable location information from the map. So the client itself is has got like a separate data um, query going to get the map. So the client has the map information and is then using information stored in the system of the laptop about its Wi-Fi you know, ID or whatever to so that the client itself identifies its location. It's not something done server-side, network-side. It's done on the client. It's done on the client. The logic is on the client side. The server has that mapping. The client does the 
correlation between its understanding of its network ID and uh, the map uh, for dispatchable location and then uses that. Okay. And is, is, it, is that generally based on yeah, Wi-Fi access points? Is, is that or how it's done typically? Wi-Fi access point is one, wired networks, IP address and subnet. That's another way that's done. I think that's, that, that's typical. Those that's are the main ways. Okay. All right. Okay. So just, just following that through. So then the client knows its location when it's within the office based on the map. And then at the moment when a 911 call is made, the person sees an emergency, dials 911. I know this because I've done the research, but for anyone listening who doesn't, what, what then happens? So the 911 is dialed. How does that location get from the client to the PSAP eventually? So um, much like, and I won't go into the, all of the technical details, there's a limit to how much I can talk to the, the PSAP side of things. But from a client side, when a 911 call is launched, it will look up the mapping. And if it identifies that there is a location information, it will use that location information. And the call goes hands off to the service provider, it goes to the uh, PSAP or in between to a VoIP provider who might do another lookup and goes to a PSAT, et cetera. So that should all be business as usual. And then uh, that's done uh, using a new SIP parameter, the PIDFLOW parameter, it, is that correct? In the SIP signaling, yeah. The, okay. Or as I call it, PIDFLOW uh, in the SIP signaling carries that location information. Now, if for whatever reason the uh, client cannot find that mapping, it can locate, it can get an IP address, but there is no mapping to it or there's no match. And the 911 call will go ahead without that location information. Okay, so the 911 call goes out and, and just, yeah, without that extra header. And so based on that, I guess the eventually the PSAP operator will end up just with the pre-configured address for the location. Right. right? Or for, for, the, for the number, sorry. Yeah. It's important to know that this is actually pertinent for off-premise calls made. If you're in a cafe, and you launch such a call, if actually, if you're in a cafe and you start up your MCC client, it'll tell you that there'll be a banner on the client that says no registered location. Uh, and then you can click on it. And it's all configurable by the operator. They can put what number that the, their subscriber has to call or uh, a link to the URL where they have to go change their registered location information. So that will be available. So the, there's indication for the subscriber to know a priori that they don't have a registered location information. And when the call is placed, yes, the call will be carried as a unknown call. Okay. So the, so yes, the, in the nomadic case, you're in the cafe, you open up your laptop and MaxUC pops up and it has a warning at the top saying, we don't know your location right now. We won't be able to signal it if you dial 911. Mm -hmm. And then, so it sounds like one way I'd imagine people might do this is that they might have a pop-up saying, please enter your address or something, and then you type in Starbucks or whatever. It sounds like that's that's not the way approach you've gone. You've gone through a way of prompting people to go to a link or to call a number to update the information. Is that right? That's right. I mean, if you had, for example, if you said Starbucks and there are two Starbucks and you could not, that would be much worse. Right. <laughs> forcing somebody a priori, not when they're placing a 911 call, but in, in advance of that to say, we don't have a registered location information. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So then ultimately, I guess if there was no information provided, then when the call eventually makes it to the PSAP, presumably the PSAP operator would see that there wasn't information and would have to prompt that in the middle of the call. Yeah. Okay. That all makes sense. So we've been talking about the desktop client scenario where you're on a laptop. If you were doing the same thing, the Starbucks scenario, but you were using uh, the MaxUC mobile uh, client on your on your phone, I 
that my, it's my understanding you'd actually handle that a little bit differently. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. If you are on your mobile phone, then the, the mobile OS will take control of that, will triangulate GPS information, and the call is just handed off um, to the mobile, um, native mobile client or the native mobile phone. If you are on a lap, on a tablet that doesn't have a SIM connection, it'll behave like the desktop scenario. Is there any future world where a lot of tablets have GPS, where I could imagine a world where a tablet would still place the call over the you know, Metaswitch CFS SIP network, but would take the GPS coordinates from its GPS tab and kind of include that automatically? Is that something that people are doing or thinking about? That's a good question. I don't think I have an answer to that yet. Fair enough. It's worth investigating. Yeah, it's, it's something you could imagine doing. It sounds like for, for now, with the, with the cell phone, it's not relevant because we're handing it off to the regular yeah. voice network. But it's, yeah, it, it's cool that all of this is possible. Um, the technology's certainly moved along a lot in the last few years. And hopefully, lots of 911 calls will be operated um, and handled much more successfully as a result. So yeah. you're saving lives, Joe. Good job. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Thanks for talking through uh, all of that. That is very helpful. Yeah, to finish, I don't, I don't want to take too much of your time, but to finish, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what you've got uh, coming up. And let's start actually not so much about the future, but one of the other recent things that has come out is the, I don't know, it's called the MaxUC Connector for Teams. There's kind of a integration app that helps make MaxUC and Teams work better together. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. NCT, as we call it, is a short form for that connector, is offered as a service. And I think that this, it has an interesting and unique place and value that it brings to customers. NCT is an Azure-hosted service that we offer. Really, it is leveraging our ComPortal APIs and bringing ComPortal into the Teams user interface. Mm -hmm. For the end subscriber who is traditionally a desk phone user or has relies on all the PDX functionality that MaxUC offers, uh, but today is using a Teams UI because they have the E1 or an E3 um, subscription to their uh, Microsoft 365 environment. To them, having two apps is a bit of a challenge. That's the first challenge. The second one is usability, like the same feel of their desk phone or knowing of their MaxUC client that want to be able to easily have one UI and carry on their workflow uh, with the most optimal way. For those users, NCT is a really nice solution. It doesn't solve for everything. So people have to be, have to acknowledge what, where the boundaries are, but what it delivers. NCT is again, as an Azure hosted service is offered as a max UC feature. At the moment, we are not charging. There's no license for it. It's part of the premium license. I believe if you get the client, you, you get that. It's also, there's a commissioning fee that you have to support. We did a first version of it just to learn the mechanics and, and how to go about it and offering how to distribute this app, et cetera. That's all been sorted out. We have a version two that we create. With version two, the customers who have the, what am I, I'm missing out words. Customers who opt for the MCT will get an app manifest that's branded for them. That branded connector will show up on their team's client once installed. It gives them a dialer to dial out to a PCing call, and that call is launched through MaxUC. They have the option of a click to dial or a teluri kind of uh, user flow. They can see their comportal contacts within the team's UI. So I think it gives them enough to work when they're placing calls outside of the business. 
yeah. calls would still ring their Maxity registered device. And keep in mind, those that are doing extension calling are likely to use their Teams. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a nice feature to make it easier to get access to all of your MaxUC functionality from within Teams. That definitely seems helpful. So to wrap up now, as we look to the future, as as a if there's a service provider listening to this who's got all of the you know, former Metas, which now Microsoft hosted PBX UCAS stuff. What should they be excited about for the next two or three years? What's you know, what are you excited about working on next? I'm certainly excited that we have to get the new MatUC desktop fully launched in 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 the next few iterations at full functional parity to 32. Very excited about that. I'm very excited about the accessibility advancements we have made. We continue to make, and we expect by the end of. Uh, calendar year 2022, we expect it to be at um, WCAG AA compliance. This will give our subscribers the ability to expand services to more different user types, expand their services, right, and be considered a digital service that is accessible, which is really, really cool. And I'm very excited about that. We're going to continue working on MCT. Um, we have a little more that we think we can bring table, bringing in voicemail into the MCT client so that you don't have to switch between applications when you're checking voicemail. That would be something that we're looking to do. Contacts is another one, bringing M365 contacts so that you can have one contact address. But again, the meaning in into what is possible. I'm not entirely sure exactly when they will come, but this is, these are some of the things that we're looking to do. Also, having a single set of credentials, Agile Active Directory credentials, so the user can log in to their desktop and then that logs them in into uh, MCT into the client. So that would be user experience again to make it more delightful for the customers. So these are some of the things that we're thinking about in the next few semesters. Very cool. So yeah, so eventually you'd have a Microsoft-based business enterprise where their Active Directory login effectively also becomes their Comportal login is the, the thinking. Yep, that's the thinking. Yeah. Okay. I can see that would make things uh, much easier for people. One less password to forget. So that's wonderful. All right. Well, Joe, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, this has been uh, informative and I'm uh, yeah excited to uh, see what the future holds and glad that you've been able to release uh, yeah, version three of my QC desktop. It's great to see the, the new UI refresh. And yeah, if anyone is listening and wants more information about the things you've talked about, what's the best place for them to go to, to learn more? Um, that's fantastic. So on Max, for MaxUC customers, I maintain a blog post on our communities, which is the MaxUC, Max by MetaSwitch uh, product blog post. So please check in on that for information. There's also our communities portal with, with information there. Do check in on that. We have released a couple of new videos of the MaxUC desktop and the MCD version two. It's on our YouTube channel. Do check it out. So the various ways of uh, learning about what we're doing in, in the Metaswitch Microsoft world. And of course, we're always there to field your questions on uh, our webinars, et cetera. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I will get links to those things and I'll include them uh, in, on the website in the show notes for the podcast episode so people can go and check that out. And obviously, I'd particularly encourage you to check out the YouTube videos um, so you can see what we've been talking about. It's hard in a podcast to talk about uh, exciting new UIs when you're listening to it in your ears and you can't see it. So uh, do check that out. Thank you again, Joe, for taking the time. For those listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you will join us again next time for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew.